you. We'll see. Well, happy Easter and good morning. Uh, I'm going to get to that. Hi, <laughs> right, it's Danny. Danny B. from Austin, Texas. Hi, Danny. I'm an alcoholic, and like Scott, I work alone. Uh, I appreciate that, Scott. Thank you very much. Uh, at any rate, we're going to be a bathroom break about every 15 minutes, the way I feel at the moment. I got up, I got up drinking coffee, and uh, man, this, is, this has been wonderful. I mean, God, I'm, I'm ready to just live here. This is, I'm, I mean, in the hotel. <laughs> This, this is this is nice, I don't know, but I don't know. Jamie said that they could get us out pretty quick. So, are y'all nervous? Well, I am. So, I want to. Uh, up, I may not be the most nervous guy in here, though. I want to welcome Mike. Uh, <laughs> And the rest of you guys that, uh, that had 30 days and less, uh, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. I know you're thrilled you finally made it here. <laughs> it was certainly an exciting moment for me. And, uh, but hang on, this is, uh, this is quite a ride. Uh, I don't know how I would have reacted if I'd had to come all the way up to the podium. And uh, so you're doing good. I thought you walked really well. And by the way, uh, your hearing is fine. I really talk like this. It's, uh, it's no distortion there. I, I want to, uh, thank, uh, Dave and, and the committee, uh, and, uh, the chairman, uh, Bill, who's been giving me le lessons in how to speak like a Texan. It's, it's Beal. Uh, uh, he spent some time there, so he's taught me what what uh, a few of our... I, I think he thinks I didn't know. Uh, he want to know how, how far a piece is. Well, I know, you know, and over, where over yonder is and what a dog leg is. And I know, but, but that really doesn't have a whole lot to do with why I'm here, does it? Well... Gosh, I had a lot of things I was going to tell you, but they just went right out the window. <laughs> you know, I, man, I loved the speakers. I mean, I, they were just—they were—you were all awesome. Thank you very much. I'm, you really were. So, regardless of what happens this morning, get that uh, album anyway, because most, there's going to be a lot of good stuff in there. And uh, I want to thank. Uh, uh, Encore. Boy, those guys work hard. You know, they really do. This, uh, yeah, yeah really do. Get my mouth up on this thing? How's that? Well, right. okay, my name's Danny. I'm an alcoholic. Yes. Is that better? Just sit over there. 
The last time I got interrupted, by the way, Ajit and I were speaking uh, in a at a conference in uh, Kansas, I think, or Kansas, and I was in the middle of a talk, and it really wasn't going that great anyway. <laughs> and uh, I had I had one good story that I thought was, you know, heart rendering and moving, and I was right in the middle of it, and the the lady came up and she said, "Excuse me, uh, I need to make an announcement." So I just stopped, and she uh, she announced that the people that owned the campground that we were having that uh, having that affair in had just been killed in a car wreck. Yeah, it, it was it was a very sad moment. It's a very awkward moment for the speaker too. Believe me, <laughs> I uh, I didn't know them, so I didn't have an immediate you know emotional reaction to it. But I knew who had to tell the rest of the story, and uh, boy, it was uh, it was painful. Uh, and uh, so, anyway, so I get nervous when I see someone approach the uh, podium. Yeah. I am from West Texas. That's uh, in a lot of other places. Uh, well, I got to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, sometime uh, in 1979. Uh, my dry date is February the 18th of 81. Uh, so I wasn't all that quick of a study. I was drinking in between meetings, and uh, it's very hard on your sobriety. Uh, it's one of the, if you don't hear anything else here this morning, you need to hear that, Mike. Uh, uh, and, and I got there because my wife, my wife, uh, she forced me out of the car, and I was too weak to resist. And uh, she had a date with her boyfriend. I was very upset about it. I, I thought it was going to ruin our relationship. And uh, so I wound up in AA. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I, went in, I went in to get someone to give me a ride so I could go find them and stop this thing. And, uh, and no one would give me a ride. You know, they just, they saw me, they called me come in and they just gathered around and started talking. And uh, I don't know what time I got there, but I stayed there until they had a meeting. And, I, you know, they had this meeting and just people get up and talk and they tell terrible stories. And I was getting very, very anxious. I was getting thirsty. And they kept talking about, they'd say, if you don't take a drink, you won't get drunk. And I thought, well, that's really good information. Uh, and you've got a good point there. And I, yeah, you may be right. And. So I think I'll take a drink. Uh, somebody take me home. Uh, but they, uh, they stayed and they had this meeting and there was people in that meeting that I knew. Uh, and I was very, I was, I wasn't happy without that at all. You know, you don't want people to know you're in AA for crying out loud. One thing to be in prison, but to go to AA. Uh, you can kind of explain how you wound up in prison. Anyway, when the meeting was over, they jumped up, held hands, said the Lord's Prayer, and converged on me, I thought, to give me a ride home. <laughs> and they, uh, they came up and they said, uh, we're going to Baskin Robbins for ice cream. Would you like to go? And I thought to myself, be still my beating heart. 
There is no way on God's green earth I'm going off with a bunch of geriatrics for ice cream while my wife is out with her boyfriend. This ain't happening. And what came out of my mouth was, sure, I'd love to go. Yeah. So there I was at Baskin Robbins holding a melting Rocky Road ice cream, having AA explained to me. And, uh, you know, the guy, they, 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 they're kind of hooked on this one little thing. If you don't take a drink, you won't get drunk. I said, I, okay, that's good. And, uh, the guy said, well, let me, let me explain it to you. He said, what? He said, it's, it's not the caboose that kills you. It's the locomotive. I thought I should have brought pencil and paper. This, uh, <laughs> this is, uh, so. I just, I need a ride home. I'm going to have to think this stuff over, you know. It's been nice to meet you guys, and uh, I'm very busy. I'll, uh, I'm going to try to, you know, try to get back to you. But I've got to, I've got to do something about my family right now. And uh, I, I had married my drinking partner. Uh, I didn't, couldn't think of anyone else you would want to marry. And, uh, hmm. So I, I got to tell you that uh, I, she didn't push me out there uh just by accident, I had a I had a history of of over drinking, and I was uh, I was born to uh, a woman that was 15 years old. My dad was 18 during the end of the Second World War. Uh, they incidentally have been together for 61 years, and uh, yeah, with me. <laughs> I have two younger brothers who who uh, don't have this uh, this disease. They uh, they had uh, sufficient reason to moderate or stop. I I've had several several good reasons to stop, as you'll hear in a few minutes. Uh, and it, I just thought uh, you know I must be in the wrong place at the wrong time, or need to change brands, and uh, if I could afford to. But anyway, I was uh, I was. I was just an average kid, you know. My sponsor said when he listened to my to my uh, fourth step, he said, "Danny, we I don't think that we're going to discern here that you had a, a terribly abusive childhood, but you have had a long one." And, uh, and Harold thought he was funny, yeah, but uh, actually he was, and. Uh, I, uh, what did I do? Well, I just lived until I was about uh, nine or ten years old, you know. I mean, I just didn't do anything wrong. I always felt like I, like I should have been somewhere else, doing something else. I felt anxious. I felt like everyone knew what to do but me. I, uh, I thought I would go to school and, you know, I would just feel... I'd, I, they'd take me in the front door, and they'd, my mom, even when I was really young, would have to go around the back to make sure I didn't leave, because I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable with people. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what was wrong. I got shingles by the time I was six. My aunt uh, uh, killed her, uh, her baby and committed suicide. She used to take care of me. My grandmother died in a sanitarium. My, grand, my great-grandfather, would, they would have to hunt him down at various parts of the country because he'd go on running drunks. My uncle was a was a handsome, cool guy. He was my hero. He would ride the he would ride his horse into the house to see how he looked on the mirror. 
I love that guy. He was my role model. And I loved my parents. I loved my brothers. Uh, I didn't know how to express it. And uh, really, we didn't have, uh, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of uh, tools for, uh, for living. You know, we, my, these were babies having babies. You know, my dad was overseas. And my mother was 15 and she had me. And uh, we were right here in San Diego. And, uh, of course, I don't remember much about it. She says it was very nice. But uh, at any rate, uh, I moved back and forth to Midland to Odessa. When I was uh, 14, uh, whatever was wrong with me, I just imploded. And uh, I, uh, I, just, I couldn't bear to be where I was. I was depressed, and I didn't know it. I was anxious. I needed a drink, and I didn't even know about that. Uh, I, uh, I started running away from home, and I, I had not yet had a drink. And uh, they decided that uh, there was something really, really wrong with this guy. So they, they put me in the Big Springs State Hospital. Uh, at uh, 14 and a half years old, I went to Big Springs State Hospital for a 90-day uh, commitment. And while I was there, they, uh, they treated my, uh, my illness by asking me questions and telling my mother whatever the answers were and then feeding me pills. And... Uh, you know, I left there. I wasn't any better. When I got out, I, uh, I snuck out of the house and uh, met up with some older guys down at a place called uh, Dave's Restaurant. And uh, when I got down there, they, uh, these guys asked me if I'd ever had a drink. I said, uh, sure. And they, they offered me a drink of, uh, of tap beer out of a, of a uh, it, they used to sell, they used to sell uh, Coca-Cola in these big glass gallon jugs and they what they would do they would rinse those out and fill them up and sell them to us for like a buck or a buck and a quarter and i had my first uh, drink and i had three or four drinks and all of a sudden i just began to have this warm glow and that anxiety that i had even completely forgotten that i had because it was such an integral part of who i was it's just i was always that way it just melted away and I started thinking of funny things to say. I had, uh, you know, I had a great time. I puked. I got in a lot of trouble. I made a fool of myself. And I did it again as soon as I could get out of the house. <laughs> it was just, man, it's just wonderful. Now, I had just found a solution to what was wrong with me. No one else had been able to find it, but I had found it. And I mean, it worked quick and it worked well. And yes, there was a little bit of a price to pay for it, but hey, that's okay. I can handle it. So uh, my, my little drinking episode caused a little ripple effect around the, around the town. I decided to leave town. They captured me, brought me back, and put me back in that hospital. And this time they decided to treat me with Thorazine. If properly administered, Thorazine will leave your mind somewhat lucid, uh, but it renders your motor skills... <laughs> Null and void. And you just sit there near the door plotting your escape. And, uh, you know, you're busy all day because you're just making plans. Uh, uh, well, you ain't going anywhere. I'll tell you that. And uh, 
but finally, I guess they decided I was going to stay, so they uh, they lowered my dosage, and and I met a couple of guys who were getting shock treatments there that were from my hometown, and I'd never really had any real friends, and these guys uh, befriended me, and each time before their shock treatments, well, we would, you know, play checkers and bond, and then they'd go have a shock treatment, and it'd take me days to get them back to where they could really know whether they were black or white or red. And so I decided we're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to leave. So on visitor's day, I stole a car, uh, and, uh, broke these two guys out. And we left and went to Midland, which was about 40 miles away and picked up two more guys who should have been in that hospital. <laughs> we broke into a liquor cabinet, got plenty of supplies, got a six foot of garden hose. We call it in Texas, we call that an Oklahoma credit card. Uh, you, that's the way you, way you get gas. And, uh, and we headed off for, uh, for Mexico. We decided we needed to leave the country. So we're taking off and it's like, it's great adventure. And it's like, this is my first game. And I'm I, actually, I'm pretty energized. I feel excited. I'm upbeat. I've had a few drinks. I've got a plan and we're heading for Via Cunha. And, uh, as we headed that way, we would run out of booze and food, and we would get out and go into a convenience store and create a diversion and then steal what we needed. And as escaped mental patients, creating a diversion is no problem. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> by the way, I'm your spiritual speaker, Mike. And, uh, I know you've had a lot of trouble, but we're going to try to guide you through. Uh, stay with me here. Uh, anyway, we created a diversion, and we headed for, uh, headed for the border. And the further we got from that hospital, the more these guys' meds began to wear off. It became very clear that they were in there for a reason. Oh, as we made it across the border, uh, I sold the car to a taxi driver in, uh, in Via Cunha, and we were in Boys Town having a few drinks, and that's when I really realized that my plan had just ended. I had, uh, this is as far as I had planned. <laughs> so we're running out of money. I'm starting to sober up. These guys are acting pretty bizarre. And I hear a noise in the back, and uh, one of them had just killed a parrot that belonged to some, a girl at work down there. I don't know why. He said it said something ugly to him. Uh, but we just, we got arrested, you know. We, we tried to outrun the Federales and make it back to America, but they arrested us, and so we're, we were thrown in, in a jail in Mexico. Exactly. But... The same thing I said then, and I, I concur. It's not a place to be. You don't get a first phone call. And even it, once I did get a hold of the uh, operator, but what, what's Ola mean, you know? <laughs> what do we talk? I just want, I want to talk to my mother. <laughs> That's it, you know? So it's, uh, it's very difficult to... Uh, you know, I didn't do that well in Spanish anyway, you know, and I'm like at the ninth grade the second time. So 
she hung up on me. But my mother was on her way to Al-Anon. She was 20 years early, but she was, she was going to make it. And she found me. I don't know how. She has another story entirely. She says my story is historical fiction. And, uh, well, some of my fondest memories never happened. You know. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, she got me out and uh, she didn't break those other guys out because she thought that they would be uh, uh, a bad influence on me. And uh, she got me back across the border. She made me ride back across the, the international bridge on the hood of the car because I'd, I'd been there a while and I had lice and and I, she got me cleaned up and she had brought a girl, a lady that went to church with her. Uh, they were they were fundamentalist uh, Church of Christ. And they had formulated a plan uh, for intervention, that uh, was aversion therapy. And uh, what they did was they read to me out of the Bible all the way back to Midland, which was 280 miles, <laughs> and played uh, that traditional Mexican music, you know, with the accordions and things, as loud as it could go, the whole way back. And it worked. I, uh, I still don't like that music, and I don't want to go to church with her. <laughs> So, so things are going pretty good about now, and uh, that my dad told my mom, he said, well, maybe uh, he's about to turn 17 this summer, he probably ought to go in the Navy, and uh, so they asked me if I would uh, join the Navy or, or go to jail, and I said, I'll go to Navy. So I, I towel wound up in the Navy, can you believe that, they give me a gun, and uh, <laughs> I was in the Navy. I loved being in the Navy. I really did. I, uh, I like to, I like having a uniform. I like to, that being a part of, uh, I'm very, very patriotic. I have opinions on everything. And, uh, and I just, I love military. Uh, I did good in boot camp because they've got it fenced off. You know, <laughs> you, you can't escape. And, uh, I'm, I became a CB. Uh, so I wound up at Port Wyneme. I went through school there. I finished class because they, they insisted you finish. Uh, I finished last. I made sure of that. And uh, I really didn't do a lot of drinking then until I went overseas. And when we got to Guam, that's when I really I discovered the Club Macombo and San Miguel beer. And man, I'm going to tell you, I had a ball. I would. I drank every day. I drank every night. We we sold uh, 40 yards of the Navy's con concrete to some Guamanians for a refrigerator, and uh, I don't know how many cases of San Miguel beer. And we we built a power line down into the jungle and put our refrigerator down there. And we were a very gung ho bunch. We liked to go to work. Uh, everybody. They couldn't figure out what was going wrong with this wharfing system that they were trying to build, uh, but we were just doing terrible. Uh, I wound up, uh, you know, I got to where I would have uh, personality changes. I would drink, and I, you couldn't tell if I was going to cry or get mad or be sullen. Did I hear your liver's ready? <laughs> Uh, 
Uh, sorry. That slipped out. I didn't mean that. That's step 10. Uh, anyway, I, got, I grew big and I grew strong and I fought a lot. And my everything, my every waking moment centered around drinking. Uh, I never thought that I drank too much. I just drank. Uh, I had I had a lot of fun. Most of the time, I was pretty upbeat for a while, and then I would go into a crying jag, at which point someone would say something about it, and I would get mad, and then we'd fight. And I, I always thought I won a lot, but I got to looking. I've got my nose had been broken several times. Apparently, I wasn't as good as I thought I was. <laughs> so anyway, uh, you know, I'm doing pretty good, and I really like it, and I met some British sailors. Uh, we were drinking at the Club Macombo, and they told me that they had... Uh, brandy rations aboard their ship I thought well that can't be true so I went with them to sea uh, and they do uh, and this in the big book it says the alcoholics problems pile up on him become astonishingly difficult to solve I came to about two days maybe three at sea on a British ship <laughs> and uh, this is, this is, it's funny now. Uh, <laughs> and with my accent, there's no faking it, you know. <laughs> Mari might have got away with it even being a girl. But anyway, so it, it's a very involved process, but they get you back. And you're... <laughs> and, uh, so there, you know, there I am. Now I've got captain's mask, and uh, and you know that restricts your drinking. Uh, I get back. I just I did the best I could, uh, which was not too great. And I uh, I went home on leave and decided that I'd had all the navy I wanted, uh, so I wouldn't go back. I just wouldn't board the plane. And my parents were just exasperated. They said, you know, they'll come get you. And I thought, no, they won't. I mean, they'll understand. I, I don't like it. Uh, my parents were right. They came and got me. So I attempted suicide uh, in, uh, up in uh, Camp, uh, Camp Pendleton. We were up there doing a training. I thought, well, I'll just die. So I cut my wrist and squeezed them so they would bleed. And uh, you've got to be careful with that. I mean, those can really hurt yourself with a razor blade. And uh, so, you know, and they, they locked me up and gave me whatever became everyone's drug of choice for me, Thorazine. And uh, shortly after that, they asked me if I would like to, uh, if I'd like to get out of the Navy. And uh, they gave me a general discharge under honorable conditions after two and a half years of fun is you would say, and uh, I wound up uh, just free. I had uh, like $120, which was a lot of money, and I went to uh, Hollywood, and I lived on the streets. I knew uh, I just, I sold blood, I drank, I hustled, I stole, I had to keep moving. I made it up and down the coast because when you live like I do, you can't, uh, you can't hang with friends very long. I, uh, I didn't have any, any problem stealing to get what I wanted. I would, I would do whatever it took to, to get a drink. 
I discovered amphetamines, which I really enjoyed because <laughs> I like to stay awake. I want, I don't want to miss anything. <laughs> and you can drink absolutely forever on that stuff and grind your teeth and meet new people. <laughs> and, uh, But I finally met so many people I had to leave. <laughs> and I just thought, I'm going to have to raise my standard of living. So I went back to Texas and went to prison, uh, <laughs> which was actually a step up. And I got back to Texas, and uh, my dad tried to give me a job. He owned an electrical business, and I just, I just didn't show up enough. And when I did show up, I, I wouldn't work enough. And when I did work, it was usually kind of sloppy. And because I would just be working and... I would, you know, I'd get up that morning and I'd think, you know what, my dad's been good to me. I'm going to give this a shot. I'm going to really try. And I'd go to work with good intentions and I'd get out there and I'd be doing something. And all of a sudden I'd just be staring at the wall. And I'd think, I can't stand being here. And I got to go. And I would head to the office bar and order a beer and, I, and entertain the barmaids. And that's where, that's where I'd always wind up. I started. I had started blacking out a lot, and it, it wasn't infrequent anymore. It just I, you never could tell when I would or where I would. I had met some guys there. This this has always been a big thing with me, uh, but I always wanted to belong. I mean, I, I just felt apart from and to meet people that would would accept me. I would do anything to be accepted. It seemed. And I met some guys who were, uh, they were, everybody liked them. I mean, they were big, they were tough, they carried guns. The women liked them. They drank beer. They, they only came out at night. You know, <laughs> I liked these guys, you know. And they were, uh, what they were doing, they were, they were out in the oil fields stealing mercury out of gauges and selling it, you know, and they making a lot of money. And they had, uh, they had lost one of their employees and they had an opening. And uh, I applied for the job, and I got it. And pretty soon, you know, I'm uh, I'm with them. We're we're drinking uh, we're drinking Chevis Regal, and playing shuffleboard, and and hanging out with the uh, with the girls. And I mean, I've arrived. I'm having a good time. I'm a gangster. I've got my own gun, and uh, even got bullets in it. I think I'll shoot somebody if I ever get the chance, but. I really just, what I really like to do is when I stayed in motels a lot, you know, and I like to, I like to put the gun in my waistband and put on a bandana and just kind of check myself out in the mirror. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the kind of gangster I really was. Uh, it just, it just, I just thought it, it's, it's kind of cool looking actually. Uh, but they, they called the Texas Rangers and we were arrested and I got, uh, and I wound up, they, they gave me a probation, and they said, if you'll, uh, if you'll stay out of these bars and stay away from those people and hold down a job and report on time, and, you know, you, you can live this down, and your record will be expunged, and uh, you'll, be, uh, you'll be fine. And I said, that's great. I, really, I was really excited. I mean, I'd been in jail for like three months. I saw the error of my ways. I wanted to do better. I got out. And I lasted two weeks in a job, and I just got anxious. I just had to go. So I left and went to Dallas. I got to Dallas, and I met some guys that were doing the metropolitan version of what we were doing in West Texas. 
And pretty soon I had 13 five-year sentences and I was on my way to the Texas Department of Corrections. So, and I spent the last part of the 60s doing time uh, learning about agriculture. Uh, the, uh, I was in prison when they had the, we had the convicts, convicts were running to prison. Uh, they didn't, it was a, it was probably a pretty tough time, but you know, you just, you're there. I don't remember, I don't talk a lot about prison. There's, it's just kind of pretty much every day. It's kind of the same, <laughs> you know, you know, you're, you are going to stay, you're going to work. Uh, you can actually get arrested in prison, by the way, uh, which is uh, kind of novel. I thought we already were. <laughs> and, uh, I got arrested in prison for making, uh, assisting in making, uh, chalk, which is, uh, convicts, uh, that's convicts liquor. And, uh, so they, they, they caught us and I tried to drink it anyway. And they beat me up and put me in, uh, in solitary confinement. And, uh, and when I came out, I didn't, I never told on anyone else. I didn't let, I didn't let them know who else was involved. So when I came out, I had a, I had a good name. Now I'm somebody in prison, which is the first time I've been somebody, you know, period. And, uh, it's probably was not a good message to send me. Uh, but I got out of prison and uh, I acted on an old idea. My mother had, uh, Jamie, you can leave when I talk about this. My mother had said to me, son, what you need is a wife, a job, and kids, a car, and a bank account, a house. You'll be okay. So I went looking for a woman that had kids and a bank account and a car. <laughs> I married her. My mother lied. It was, I was not okay. That was the worst two weeks of my life. And, uh, her mother drank, her mother drank as bad as me and had worse personality changes and a vocabulary that would match mine any day. So I left her, went back to my bar. I had a bar in Odessa with Days. Days is my place. And I'm in Days and I don't know how I can afford to drink. I don't work. I, I'm not currently stealing, but apparently I'm good at this because I'm always drunk. I'm always either insanely drunk or on my way or explaining why you need to come get me out of jail. So I'm sitting there on, on what was apparently one of my good days, and there was a girl sitting over in the corner drinking a beer crying. Now, this is uh, uh, back in, I don't know, late 60s, I guess, after I got out of prison. I don't know. I, I don't really know what time it was. Like I said, historical fiction. Uh, but at any rate... Uh, I went over and I talked to the girl and, uh, you know, cause I'm compassionate and I felt bad that she was crying. And I asked her what was going on and she told me that she was, uh, she was pregnant and, uh, that she couldn't go home. Uh, there was a social stigma attached to that in those days and, uh, that if she, she needed a husband and she just wanted to go home and I got to crying because I wanted to go home too. <laughs> and, uh, we hatched a plan. So we got married right away. And I, I informed my mother and she said, you have a wife. <laughs> so now I have two wives. <laughs> and I came to believe. <laughs> I'll tell you, that was a, that was a difficult time for me. 
we uh, we went on a honeymoon with the second one, and we went to uh, we went to our new home in, in Oklahoma, uh, McAllister, Oklahoma. If we took a bus from uh, McAllister through Dallas, or from Odessa through Dallas up to McAllister, and I I just uh, bought a couple of fifths of whiskey and entertained the passengers. I had a great time. Nearly got kicked off a couple of times. We finally got there, and there was a limousine waiting to pick us up. And the guy was well dressed. He was, you know, wore a triple X beaver hat, and he had a. It was a chauffeur-driven limousine. You know, this guy. I mean, this guy had it going on. I thought, well, I've finally done something right. And because uh, I lived, by the way, I lived by this uh, uh, motto at that time: "Ready, fire, aim." Uh, and, it, and the problem with that motto is that sometimes you'll hit something, you know, and that's all you have to do is hit some, do some one thing right. And then you're convinced that you're, you know, you're just unlucky. So uh, we go to his house and we go in and he's got lots of bedrooms. I mean, lots of them, probably 12 or 13. He had servants. And if you went out on the veranda and looked right across you could see his place of business. I had married the warden of the Callister State Penitentiary's daughter. I thought, I thought, my life is unmanageable. What are the chances of this happening? I'm starting to get really tired here. Uh, now I, I can't relax. I'm very thirsty, and I have to go back to my bar. So I left her, and I went back to my bar, and I'm, I don't have a plan. So I'm just drinking, and my mother shows up sometime later, and she says, come on, we're going to court. And I said, what for? She said, you're getting a divorce and an annulment today. So I went to, the, I went to court, and... He said, well, we went in there and she told the judge that she wanted a a divorce and an annulment. The the lawyer didn't get to talk. The judge didn't get to talk. And I didn't get to talk. (laughs) She had it all planned out. Her eldest son was a very sick boy. He was an escaped mental patient. And she told him that. (laughs) And uh, he had had a problem with drinking. But they we were moving to uh, Brady, Texas, where they did not sell booze. And they had me a job in a mohair uh, plant. (laughs) Very exciting job. And the judge just, you know, the judge just surrendered. And (laughs) she got, uh, she got her, uh, (laughs) she got her boy and moved me to Brady and I got that job. And I went out on the job. I lasted four hours. My job was to stand there next to a a barrel, and there was a loom that just wove mohair into a barrel of a 55-gallon drum, and I was given a pair of scissors. When that thing filled up, I cut it, (laughs) moved that barrel, put another one there, and wait. I have a very active mind. Uh, So when they had break, I broke. And I headed back, I headed back to Texas. And it just actually starts to go downhill from here. And, uh, I, uh, I went back to prison. I went back to prison because, uh, well, 
we uh, I burglarized a uh, a bar, me and another guy, because we were gonna we were gonna steal it everything and uh, start a new life. But apparently we decided to stay and party. <laughs> and uh, so so when they found us, we were passed out on the pool table, or I was. He just they nudged me with a gun and he said I turned over and that cop saw me and he said oh hell it's just Danny he just drunk. And uh, I got 10 years, just like that. And I mean, I, I lay my head down on that steel bunk, and I just went to sleep. I, man, I, they, didn't re- they didn't arrest me. They rescued me. I was worn out. I, uh, I, went, to, I went to prison. I rode the chain uh, the 300 miles to the penal farms, and on the way, I think I had my first, uh, uh, probably my first rational thought. And if something doesn't happen, someone's going to kill me or I'm going to spend my life in prison. So when I got back to prison, uh, for some reason, I, I made a choice to, uh, to stay away from everybody. I didn't, uh, I didn't hang out with the gangs. I was, I was well thought of because of my incident some years earlier. And uh, so I was, I was afforded some respect. I was a, uh, I was, I was a veteran of sorts. So... I applied for VA benefits, and I, they started paying me to go to uh, college in prison. And uh, so I was going to college and taking uh, counseling. I got involved in all kinds of uh, spiritual pursuits. I became the astrologer of the uh, Walls unit. And, uh, and then I moved on to Christianity, and that became hard. And so I, became, uh, I got involved in Buddhism and... I really kind of had a, a whole bunch of stuff. I finally wound up on creative visualization. I thought that was my forte. And uh, I, I actually made some pretty good progress. I found out that I wasn't quite as stupid as I thought I was. I didn't drink this whole time. I quit smoking. I practiced yoga. I did creative visualization. I had an idea of what my life was going to be like when I got out. I knew exactly what I was going to do. I knew where I was going to live. I knew how my life was going to be. And that I wasn't going to drink anymore, and I wasn't going to do drugs anymore, and I was going to hold down a job, and that that was going to be cool. Now, I would, now not drinking did not mean beer, and drugs did not mean marijuana. That was, I mean, I wasn't going to drink, drink, or do really hard drugs. Uh, so when I, I got out, I was paroled out, uh, and I wound up, I got a, a mobile home out in West Texas, and I got it way out so that you could not approach my place without me seeing you about two miles away. And I, uh, I got my first car that belonged to me. I got my first bank account, my first stereo. I mean, and this was my stuff. And I had a job. And I worked for my dad at his, at his business. And I showed up most of the time. I had some long weekends. Uh, I just, sometimes I would call from Mexico again. And I'd need money to get out of jail. I would, uh, but, but by and large, I was doing good. I wasn't showing up in the newspapers. So my dad's pretty happy with that, you know. <laughs> the fact that I only work maybe two days a week uh, is okay. I was, uh, you know, I, I had, in my view, I was very successful. Uh, but my, uh, I had everything that I thought I needed except a wife. So I went looking for a wife. And, uh, and I found her. She was dancing on top of the table at the Discovery Lounge. <laughs> I saw her and I said, hell, that's my wife. <laughs> and I married her and my life changed. 
she'd carry out the trash and be gone three days. And, uh, <laughs> man, she was good looking. She was bartender. And, uh, I, I had, I got to where I had to stay up and guard her because she's, she had, she had this thing about having boyfriends. And so I'm, I'm working all day for my dad and, uh, and taking amphetamines so I can stay up all night and guard her and drinking whiskey so I can come down and relax. My liver just enlarges and I began to have, uh, I began to have serious health problems. I contracted hepatitis, wound up in the hospital, got out, uh, went back in the hospital for it. And while I was out, uh, I haven't talked about this in a long time, but while I was out in between my two hospital stays, I went to a, uh, I went to a, a bookstore. And when I went to this bookstore, I was looking for a book that just had the answer in it, you know, and I'm not reading the whole book. I'm just looking at the back. I don't, I don't need a lot more information. I just need an answer here because I, <laughs> I can feel that I am starting to implode. And, uh, I don't know why, and I don't know what to do. And uh, there was a lady showed up. She was from Al-Anon. Her name uh, is Fran H., and she was just gorgeous. And she uh, she came up next to me and said, uh, she said, honey, I know where there's a lot of people who think like you. I said, really? You know? And... Uh, she said, yeah, and we're having a conference, and uh, we'd really like it if you'd come. And I said, oh, I'm very busy. I can't make it, but thank you. And, I, uh, and she came to see me in that hospital the second time I was there. My mother was standing at the edge of my bed doing that thing. And she's finally got me cornered, and she's telling me everything she's been wanting to tell me for a long time. And she's absolutely crazy. She has a, she has a husband and uh, two kids that she's totally ignored because she's been absolutely fixated on me. I have to be all right, and I'm not. And she's a failure, and she's going to make it okay. And she's just totally committed to this, and she's out. I mean, she is crazy. And this lady walked in, and she was carrying the autobiography, uh, I don't know if it's the autobiography, the biography of Bill Wilson. And uh, she set it down in the windowsill, and she looked at my mom, and she said, Honey, would you like to go with me to an Al-Anon meeting? And uh, she, my, my mom said, No, I've got to stay here. I said, Oh, no, you can go. It's all right. I'll be okay. I have a nurse. And she looked at me, and she said, I have a, I have a son that's just like you. He drinks like you, and he fights like you, and he rages against the world. And he's been, he hasn't had a drink in two years. And I said, Really? Why would he do that? Because uh, I couldn't imagine it, you know. And it was the first time I began to hear that maybe drinking was a problem for me. Anyway, I went through a lot of things, and I wound up at that meeting. I married that girl. That uh, that was the wife that got me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I did not do well uh, in AA uh, initially. But I wound up, uh, after several geographic cures in Austin, Texas, and... Uh, Man, I went on my last drunk, and, you know, it's like all the rest of them, it was a doozy. And I was sitting in the back of a, uh, of a stolen car, an old beat-up stolen car. This is not one that people usually would steal. And uh, I'm wearing an eye patch, 
there's nothing wrong with my eye. I just think I look cool. I've got a, I've got a full beard and I've been to lots of AA meetings. So I know all of, all of the AA lingo and most of the enthusiastic 12 steppers. I know what you have to endure to get some of you to pay you a little money so you can go get something to drink. But I was sitting in the back of that car and I had three old Milwaukee's left. And uh, I just I had just leaned out and puked green bile and blood. And I lay back, you know, and just sweating. And uh, I thought, I can't do this anymore. And I said, if there is a God, if you can help me, I really, really want some help. And I called uh, the Northland group and <laughs> Here they come, you know. They uh, they showed up, and you know what they said? If you don't take a drink, you won't get drunk. <laughs> I said, I'm listening. I said, how do you do that? And they said, well, don't drink right now. And when that passes, and right now comes again, don't drink then either. And pretty soon, you'll have like a minute. And... <laughs> He said, but if you can hang with it, you know, those minutes will become hours. Hours become days and days will become weeks and years. And, uh, and you'll be a sober, functioning member of society if you'll do what we do. I said, well, I can do that. So they took me to the club and left. And we didn't have cell phones then. And uh, I was there with my cup of coffee and I thought, I can't do that. So I called the guy back and I said, I can't do that. And he said, well, of course, we knew you couldn't. I said, well, why the hell did you leave me here if you knew I couldn't? He said, well, it's not for us to know that you can't do it. You need to know. He said, Alcoholics Anonymous is not for people who never want to drink again. Alcoholics Anonymous is for people who do want to drink again but need to do something else. And they need a way to do it. And you need power to do it. I said, well, where does that come from? He said, well, it comes from God. I said, so God's going to get me sober. He said, well... In a way, maybe yes. I said, how's he going to do that? He said, I don't know. He said, we have a book. And he said, we're going to read the book. I said, I've done this before. You know, I've been to churches. I even went to synagogues. You know, after a while, I thought, man, churches don't know. You know, I've tried everything. But, uh, you know, I, I, I stayed in that place and, uh, and listened to that guy talk. And he shared his life with me. And he told me about me. And uh, at that time... I've had four sponsors in sobriety. Two of them have died. One of them's the same guy. Uh, I had my first sponsor, then then uh, Harold Wilson, who passed away, then Jim Puckett. I should have slept more. I'm kind of emotional. Uh, Jim Puckett was uh, with with me for 17 years, and. Uh, Man, he changed my life. But uh, John Henry was there that morning, and John Henry's very animated. And he said, "I said, I said, I think I'm an alcoholic." And he said, "Yeah, you are." <laughs> I, I said, "What am I going to do?" He said, "Come on in this house. Come on in this house. Have some coffee." I said, "We got a we got a life here. We got a way to do this thing. That you're going to have to get involved. You're not well enough." You know, I, I listened. Uh, I listened to the uh, recent, you know, the miracle team that 
that beat the Russians uh, on in hockey. Yeah, it was an awesome thing. Uh, but the coach told those guys. He said uh, they they were talking to you know how talented. He said you don't have enough talent. You're gonna you're gonna have to practice. You know. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you, Mike. Uh, you don't have enough talent for this. You're like me. I don't. You have to practice. You have to get in here and do this thing. You know. You're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous this morning, if you, uh, by virtue of the third tradition, if you decide that that's what you want, welcome. We're glad you're here. You are a member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you want to be able to endure this, we have a program. And without the program, you're really, you're going to be in, you're going to find it's a very, very painful experience. <laughs> yes, you will. Uh, <laughs> I talked to a, I talked to Sean this morning, who has 19, 19 months, and I, I said, good morning, how are you? He said, fantastic. Well, he said, it's getting a little tough. I said, well, I bet it is. <laughs> it, it does get a little tough uh, if you're just working your, if you're working your program. If you're trying to use the same thing that got you here to get you well, you are really going to get tired. I'll promise you that. Uh, and, and to sit and try to decipher whatever what everybody means, that also gets old. They usually mean just exactly what they say. You know, we used to, we used to go to lots of meetings to try to figure out what it was you were saying. You know, I was, I went to, uh, Gene G's house at 11 o'clock at night because I wanted to know what God's will for me was. Gene was like 60 something years old and had been in bed. He got to the, he got to the, uh, door at, uh, in his house robe, and I, I looked up, and I'd been sober like three days. I said, so what's God's will for me? He said, God told me to tell you to go home. And, uh, and meet me at the club in the morning. And, uh, and you know, that was very comforting to me. I thought, well, that's pretty cool. I guess God knows I'm here. That, I feel good about that. It was very, very comforting. I, uh, oh man, we do stuff, man. I, uh, I got sober. I, I, I found out what was wrong with me. I have an allergy to alcohol. I have a, I have a spiritual illness. And like every, like it's been said here this weekend about therapy, therapy is a wonderful tool to help you untangle things in your life that you just don't know how to quite deal with. But it's not a cure for alcoholism. That's a soul sickness. And uh, that thing it takes, uh, it takes something, a power added to you. Something has to change in us. And, uh, and it had to happen for me. I didn't, I just, uh, I didn't know what to do. I didn't, I got thirsty after I got here and I said, well, how do you get out and get through that? He said, we pray. We pray and we read this book and you need to know, you, you need to know what's wrong with you. Cause if you don't know what's wrong with you, you know, you're going to, it's like, it's like being properly diagnosed. You know, I've been going around diagnosing myself for my whole life, you know, and if you misdiagnose, you'll almost certainly mistreat. And if you mistreat, you'll die. Because see, our disease is primary, it's progressive, and it's permanent. And it, it's fatal. It just, it, you don't get better with this stuff. It, you just sit here and it gets worse. So I, uh, I found out from my sponsors sharing and through asking myself the questions in the book, what was wrong with me? I have, I have an allergy. Whenever I take a drink, 
that becomes paramount. And I don't, I mean, nothing else is on my mind. I'm, I'm about finishing my drink. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do the next one. And I, I don't know when I'm going to stop. I may stop with two and I have. On the other hand, I may wind up coming to on a British ship. I might come to with two wives. I might come to on a pool table. My life is unmanageable. And uh, that's that. You know, and they, I said, so what do we do? They said, well, what we do is stated in the second step. What we do is that this is what we did. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That's what we did. That's it. I said, well, how do I do that? And he said, we'll, we're going we're gonna to read this book. We're going to go through the steps. I took the third step prayer with John Henry on my knees. I felt very uncomfortable doing it. I wrote an inventory. I, uh, I also am very long-winded. Um, I, I'll wind up on and on anonymous for sure. Uh, I, wrote, I wrote an inventory, and, uh, and I, I shared that inventory. And when that inventory was over, the person that was listening to it said, well, what's evolved here is a liar, a cheat, and a thief. You know, if you want to keep living the way you're living and doing what you're doing, you don't need our help. You're perfect, perfectly capable. But if you want a new way of life, there is more work that has to be done. And you need to decide if that's really what you want to do. So go down by Town Lake, which is about a mile from there, and you have a talk with God and think about what you've just said. And uh, if you want this way of life, then you make that decision and start with that, start doing that sixth and seventh prayer, and we're going to make a list. So I went down there, and when I went, when I walked down there, I stepped out of off the sidewalk, and I felt a power just wash over me and through me, and it just covered me and stayed with me. It seemed like for hours, and I said, "I've been set free, oh, man." But what does a free person do? Well, you learn to live free. You don't know how. A prisoner that you set free just sits around and waits for you to feed him. And you guys, because I was in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, told me that now it's going to be, we're going to do some work. You're going to learn how to live. You're going to learn how to feed yourself, how to be self-supporting when you can. So I thought, man... I must be through. I mean, they said all you need is a relationship with God. This did it. So I, I, I kind of stopped there. You know, I wrote an, I wrote a, a, an eight-step list, and I just kind of rested on my laurels, going to meetings and talking about my spiritual experience. And I started to get very uncomfortable. And I went to, I went to a meeting that uh, another guy was at that everybody loved to listen to. And I was sitting there, and when it was over with, I said, listen, if I stay sober one more day like this, I'm going to smoke a 45. And he said, uh, he said, well, what I do every day is I get up in the morning and I just say, I'm a sober, healthy, happy, handsome, and exciting, loving child of God. <laughs> I said, really? He said, yes, I do. So that night I went to bed in my stolen car. I woke up in the morning. I got the rearview mirror. I tilted it. And I said, I'm a sober, healthy, happy, handsome, exciting, loving child of God. I thought, this isn't working. <laughs> so I called, uh, I called my sponsor, and I told him what I was doing. And he said, well, it's not working because it's not true. 
I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, I thought we explained, uh, you're a liar, a cheat, and a thief. And you have way too bad a case of alcoholism to, to rely on an affirmation. He said, you have a list, and I don't think you've done anything with it. So I began, I began to, to address the list uh, with the, all the uh, enthusiasm that I could muster. And I, I'll tell you uh, a few of the things that have happened. The ninth step is an absolutely incredible, incredible thing. I had, uh, I had a number of things that, uh, that happened that were difficult. One is, is that I had robbed, uh, well, I had been accused of robbing a bank. They had been looking for me. I was on parole, and they'd been looking for me for quite some time. And I, uh, I was hiding in AA. And uh, I finally, I just told my sponsor, I said, I got a problem. He said, what is it? I said, uh, they, want, they want to talk to me about a bank robbery. They've got a video of it. And uh, they, they've, you know, it's a tall guy with a hat and glasses and a beard, which I wore. And uh, he said, they want to see me. And he said, well you're going to have to go down and talk to them. I said, oh, no, I'm not going down there. They'll give me life in prison. He said, well, you told me uh, that you were willing to go to any length. And I said, uh, well, that was, that was theory. This is... <laughs> they could lock me up over this. He said, well, we said uh, you had to be willing to go to jail. I said, oh, no, no. Uh, he said, well, you either do it or you get you a new sponsor. Because you're not going to last in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't work with losers. So I sat out in that car in front of the club that night, and I spent a long time praying about it and thinking about it. And uh, I had a, uh, I had probably another spiritual awakening. And I realized for the first time in my life that I had something on the inside of me that was more precious than my physical freedom, and that if I, I may, I may have to give up my physical freedom. And I'm a blackout drinker. I don't know if I've done that thing or not. But I came to a peace with that, and I said, okay, I'll go. And I got up that morning. I went into the club, and I saw these guys that were, that were there early. And I said, man, you guys, uh, you, got, you guys got to pray for me and check on me because I'm going down there. And, you know, they may lock me up, and, you know, I'll, I guess I'll just be secretary of the group in prison. And uh, I went down there, and, and I w- walked in. And I saw the detective, and he said, uh, what do you want? And I said, I'm here, and I told him who I was. And uh, he said, I want to show you something. And he showed me that video of that guy going from teller to teller. And I watched it, and he played it again the second time. It's only 15, 16 seconds long. And I thought, what, I wonder what I did with the money. And uh, he, uh, he, said, uh, he said, where have you been? I said, I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous now, man. I've been working steps, got a sponsor. I've been, you know, helping some people over here. And, you know, I go to meetings all the time. I'm really, I'm really doing good, you know. <laughs> and he said, he said, uh, whoa. He said, listen, the guy I'm looking for wouldn't walk in here. He said, you go back to Alcoholics Anonymous and help those people out. He said, those people know what this life's about. And they do more to help us keep these streets clean than, than, half a dozen police forces. Man, I walked out there, I said, I'm in. <laughs> AA, man, that's the way. You know? <laughs> you know, I... 
I made an amends to a lady. I made an amends to a lady that uh, that I'd stole money off of her uh, refrigerator. And uh, the closer I got to her house, the more irritated I became that I would even have to do it. It was like 20 years old. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I never liked that old woman anyway. <laughs> and it wasn't that much money. And, uh, you know, and the, the closer I got, the more irritated I got, the more determined I got that I wasn't going to do it. And then I could hear his voice saying, you know, you can just get you a new sponsor. So I go, I don't want a new sponsor. You know, mine's popular. And, uh, <laughs> so, so I go up and knock on the door and I said, uh, she's passed away. I said, Miss Bryce, uh, my name's Danny and I stole the money off your refrigerator, me and another guy, uh, several years ago. And I don't know how much I owe you. I don't know what the interest, but I'm, I'm here to pay it back and to tell you I'm sorry. And, uh, she started crying. I said, uh, what, I'm sorry, what can I do? And she said, well, honey, I was in the back praying because uh, I don't, I live on Social Security and I don't have money for my medication. I was just asking God, what are you going to do? You're going to have to help me out. <laughs> so I said, well, he sent me, you know. <laughs> and uh, how much do you need? And I took her, I took her to get her medication and uh, cleared that up. And on the way back home, as I was feeling the spiritual, she said, uh, I always knew it was you and that other little old boy. I kind of let the wind out of my sails. I, uh, I'll tell you two quick things. I always talk about this. And, uh, yes, I'm going to cry. Uh, but, uh, my dad is, uh, oh God, my dad is, is my hero. He's a World War II veteran and he's like 80 now and he's just, he's cool. And he's just the rock of the, he's just a rock. And when I was really young, we lived in South Texas after he got out of the Navy, I was the apple of his eye and he used to drink beer and play old Hank Williams music and play with me in the backyard. And we would play till I was tired and he would lay down and lay me on his bare chest. And I would feel safe. And I just, everything's okay. Well, this disease just tore us apart. And I made choices that it just humiliated him. And he didn't understand me. And so we just kind of went our separate ways. And when I got sober, I, I went to uh, I went to make my amends to my parents, and uh, and it was sort of contrived. It was like all stage, you know. Here's your chair, here's my chair. Sit down. Yes, I did all that, and I'm sorry. And it just never quite we didn't we didn't connect. And over the years, I would hear from my family that my dad, who's a very quiet man, uh, was very proud of me, and he would say to people. You know, Danny's, uh, Danny's doing good. He's in AA. He's, uh, you know, he helps people. And, uh, but he never would say that to me. And, uh, I guess I was, uh, about 18 years sober. And I went home uh, to visit him and I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I came back, he was, uh, he was in bed and I asked my mom, I said, uh, is he awake? And she said, he's pretending to be asleep. So I went in there to kiss him on his old bald head. And I leaned down to kiss him. And he said, I said, I love you, Pop. And he 
held my head to his bare chest. And uh, all of those years just went away. And he said, I didn't know what to do. And I said, I know, Pop. I didn't either. He said, I'm so proud of you. He said, those people in Alcoholics Anonymous, he said, what a great bunch of people. He said, you always tell them how much we love them and what they did for our family and uh, how much that we appreciate what they've given my son back. And uh, so I promised that I would tell that, and I do pretty frequently. Uh, I've been telling it for a few years, and I yet I still get emotional. It touches my heart. Uh, it's, a, it's just a wonderful, wonderful life. Relations that you didn't think to be healed will be healed. You'll, you'll, you will make a host of friends. You'll find a way to be actually useful. You'll find that, that what you've endured in your life, just like it says in our book, that will become your greatest asset. You'll be able to tell about the time that you walked into a meeting and you've just done everything you could to try to make it and you met some people who poured out their hearts and lives into your life and you were able to walk now in your own greater dignity and truth. It'll happen for you if you stay here and you work these steps. You stay plugged into this power. You gotta have it. And you'll make mistakes along the way. I promised Dave B that I would tell you that I have made some mistakes along the way. And boy have I. I, uh, I like marrying. And I hear a lot of people say, well, my picker's broke. And my sponsor said, no, that's not true. He said, you're a broken picker. <laughs> and uh, he said, it's, we can, it can be fixed. Uh, so I said, well, that's good. But So I went through a lot of things. I, I was two years sober and made my, one of my first little talks at a state hospital. And man, I mean, it was a pretty good talk, you know, wasn't with very little truth in it, but it was really good. And, uh, and there was a girl in the audience who had on one of those little hospital bands. There's something erotic about those things, isn't there? And, uh, we, we connected. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> we connected and uh, she decided she'd... she'd I was, you know, I'm two years sober. She's going to be in good hands. So she got, she got out of the hospital and, uh, we didn't get a lot of support in our home group. Uh, so we moved to West Texas, uh, back where I was from and, and she stayed with me six months. She did not, she did not prosper under my care. And, uh, we just got really kind of ugly sober. And finally, I surrendered, uh, and uh, they, you guys came and got her and got her a free bed into a treatment center. And she didn't drink, but she was just six months worse off. And y'all got her a free bed in a treatment center. They packed her up, moved her in. She's in treatment, and I called Harold and said, I need a sponsor. And he said, well, yes, you do. And uh, I got back to working the steps and, and hanging with Harold Wilson, who's passed away. And uh, Harold said, now, Danny, listen. He said, about that girl, he said, it's the first phone call that will make you sick. So don't make that first phone call. I said, I got you. 
And so I was going to meetings and I'm glued to Harold. We're going on 12-step calls. And the only time I feel bad, well, is when I'm not with, with you guys. I was like carpooling to and from the meetings with the four horsemen, you know. <laughs> and they, you guys wait here. I'm going inside. Please don't leave. I've gotten accustomed to you, you know. <laughs> and if you do that, I mean, I'll tell you, your life gets stressful. But after, after a couple of weeks... I just couldn't not call, so I called her. And I called her up and said, how are you doing? She said, fantastic, we're going to, getting biofeedback and we're doing inner child work. And I just thought, geez, really, Harold didn't told me any of this stuff. I said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm just going to meetings and reading the big book and saying my prayers. And she said, well, down here we think that uh, we've learned that a lot of people hide in those meetings and behind that book. And I thought about that and I said, screw you. And uh, I picked up the phone and I called Harold and it was late. And I said, Harold, what are you doing? He said, oh, we were just laying here waiting on your phone call. <laughs> I, I, said, I said, do you know what she said to me? He said, you weren't supposed to call her. I said, yeah, but. And he said, what did she say to me, boy? I said, she told me that a lot of people hide behind that big book and in those meetings. And he said, well, me boy, if you're a drunk like me, there's no safer place in the world to hide. He said, I've been hiding there for 26 years, and that bottle hadn't found me yet. I thought, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> he had a great commitment. I just, screw you. That was the best thing I could think of. <laughs> Two things and I'll close. Uh, I sponsored a guy for a while that, man, he was as bad about marrying as I was. And finally, I said, you know, you're really going to have to learn how to date. You're just going to have to learn to go, not go from zero to 60 in, t in 10 seconds. And he said, okay, that's great. And so I said, there's a conference, let's go. They're going to have a dance. We'll hang out. So he goes with me and he said, you see that girl over? I'm going to go ask her to dance. I said, okay, cool. Have fun. So he goes out there, it's a fast dance, and they're dancing, you know, about six feet apart and talking. And he comes back, and he's got this weird look on his face. I said, what's wrong? He said, well, I asked her, what's your name? And she said, Hillary. And I said, well, where do you, uh, where do you go to meetings? And she said, well, I go uh, to the, uh, to the uh, Hilltoppers group. He said, where's that? She said, it's in, and he told where it was, and he said, I don't want to live over there. You know? <laughs> 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 That's us. Huh? Yeah. I thought, I do. <laughs> yeah, but we we can't we can't do that. So I uh I don't know how long I've been talking, too long. I love you very much. I appreciate you. You've been a wonderful audience, and may God bless you and keep you until we meet again. Thank you. Yeah.